0: Am and why I'm here. And if you weren't, you may want to check out the message that Pastor Rick shared uh, last week. Um, I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Is anybody nervous this morning or is it just me? Okay, I guess it is just me. Would you guys do me a favor then? And if you hate this, then don't do it. But would you turn to somebody next to you and tell them that you're glad to see them and you're, you're glad that they're here with us this morning? If you're an introvert, stay where you are. Let the extroverts come to you. All right. So grab a Bible, if you could, and turn to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to continue. Look, We're going to look uh, today at verses 16 through 42. And when we last left off in the first part of Matthew chapter 10, Pastor Rick had shared with us, as Jesus had gathered the 12 together, right? Remember this group of cracked pots that he had, right? Giving them their marching orders. And we remember that he sent them out. It said in verse 6, he sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he said, and as you go, preach, saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we remember that even before he did that, back in verse 1 of our text last, last time, We read that he gave them power over unclean spirits, it said, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and disease. So these guys were ready, right, to do the miraculous. They were ready to spread this kingdom message. And remember that Jesus told them last time that they weren't going to need anything, but that everything was going to be provided for them. And imagine how pumped these guys must have been, right, at these words of Jesus. And we read and we think, what could possibly go wrong with this plan? But of course, as we look at our Bibles... Right? We notice that those beautiful red letters just continue right on down the page, don't they? Because as we look at the rest of the chapter this morning, we're going to see that Jesus indeed had a lot more to say about our mission. And we're also going to see that the second half of Jesus' words really stand in pretty stark contrast to the first half. And they include some pretty sober warnings about our working for him. But we're also gonna see, I hope that they include some very powerful promises of his care and his concern for us. So if you would pray with me and just let's ask the Lord to really bless his word this morning. So, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be here. Lord, we thank you for the freedom to gather and to study your word. Father, we pray above all else that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, Lord, that you would quiet and settle our hearts, Lord, and give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, collectively and individually as well. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there is absolutely no shortage these days of discussion about living your best life, right? And there are, there are countless blogs, there are numerous publications, there are very helpful videos. I even found a step-by-step guide on WikiHow called How to Live Your Best Life, 14 Steps with Pictures. And as you wade through all of this different material that's available, what you see is that there are sincere people who are offering sincere advice on the different things that have helped them to be more fulfilled or to be more uh, seemingly at peace with who they are. Now, admittedly, this is a much more attractive, enticing topic than the one that we have before us this morning. And As a matter of fact, today's text is one of those texts, as Pastor Rick alluded to last week, this is one of those texts that most pastors probably wouldn't pick to preach on. We would certainly much rather be looking together at the five essential essential ingredients to living your best life. But in reality, I think that we're going to see as we consider the text before us this morning, we may just find, in fact, that that is precisely what Jesus is giving to us right, as his disciples. So what we're going to do, I'm going to meet you halfway, and we're going to call this message... Five tips from Jesus on living your best life. And as we look at these warnings, which really would strike some fear into the faint of heart, what we're going to see is that they're given with so much love. And they come connected with some beautiful assurances. So we're going to jump together into verse 16, right? Jesus is going to start by giving us a warning that there is going to be some difficulty, And in fact, he says it's going to come in nearly every aspect of our lives. So the first of the five tips from Jesus on living your best life is this warnings of coming persecution. He says in verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now keep in mind the scene here, right? To this group of unlearned, unskilled, insignificant disciples, maybe not that different than we you know, who are gathered here this morning, Jesus very freely, he very honestly warns that there will be persecution and that they needed to be prepared. Basically, he says, you need to be tough minded, but you also need to be tender hearted. And he clearly communicates that simply because of the message that they were carrying on his behalf, they were going to face opposition. They were going to face it in civic, you know, in the civic arena, that's the councils, but they would also face opposition in the religious arena, right, from the synagogues. So they could expect opposition both from City Hall and from the halls of religion. And further, he says, it's going to get even better because they're going to get dragged before the leaders of both of these institutions to answer for this message that they were preaching. Now, this. I have to tell you, I think this is both... It's a remarkable and an absolutely encouraging statement. And I'll tell you why. It's remarkable because Jesus is declaring the incredible influence that this gospel message and those men and we today who carry it, the incredible influence that it would have all throughout history. Important enough that governors... Kings would notice us drag these guys in, you know, arrest them and bring them to trial. That's super significant. Now, I think this is also super encouraging because in this declaration of the influence of the gospel, there's also a demonstration of the incredible power and the effectiveness of that very same simple gospel message. Right, Paul explained to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Let me say this. There is no sin that's too great. There is no problem too complex. There is no past that is too destroyed. There's no person who is too broken that the gospel of Jesus Christ is isn't sufficient to bring redemption and to provide restoration and complete healing. It's through the gospel, it says in Colossians, Paul says that it's through the gospel that the Lord has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And Satan knows this full well, which is why there's persecution which is why he has unleashed all of the wickedness of the world systems that are at his disposal to try to oppose our message. You know, when we look around today at the systematic, the systemic opposition against the Christian faith, you know, coordinated between the media and Hollywood and different institutions and even in some cases the government, it is a seemingly staggering thing in its kind of satanic orchestration, right, by the ruler of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the Bible calls him. And yet even in this, right there in verse 18, Jesus reminds us with this warning that this is all for a purpose. Notice Jesus basically says that opposition will bring what? Opportunity. He says, yeah, you're going to get dragged before magistrates and judges and kings and leaders as a representative of me, and you're going to have the opportunity then to share about what I've done in your life, what I could do in the lives of those people. And so, you know, whenever it is that we're called on the carpet because we're serving him or because we've taken some sort of a stand for righteousness, we need to remember this, right? Jesus said, opposition would occur, but he also said that he would use it for his sake and that he could use us to be his witnesses. So, you know, do your best. Try not to tense up your shoulders and furrow your brow, you know, if you get called into the bosses or sort of seemingly called into the principal's office, but realize instead that the Lord put you there to be a representative for Jesus through you know that he is going to work and he is actually going to speak through you. Because look at the next two verses. Jesus promises that although this religious system, although the government's going to come against us, that the Spirit would speak for us. Look in verses 19 and 20. He says, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your father who speaks in you. He says, not if, but when you're put in the crosshairs, he says, God's got this. He says that I'll give you the very words that you need to speak. Now understand that for these men, and maybe for us, this again should be so very reassuring because for the early Christians, it wasn't the fear of humiliation that they dreaded. It wasn't necessarily even the cruel pain and agony, but more so, so many of them feared that their own lack of education, right, their lack of command of language, that somehow that would bring harm rather than bringing help to the truth in the gospel of Jesus. They feared that they just wouldn't be ready. Do another favor for me. Raise your hand this morning if you consistently feel totally comfortable and confident walking into any potential witnessing opportunity. Anybody? Yeah, me neither, right? <laughs> but this gave these disciples just in the same way that it should give us the confidence that it would be the spirit of the father that would speak through them when the moment was necessary, right? Even if they weren't prepared with some sort of a dazzling defense of the gospel. Now, for all of our budding Bible teachers in the room, let me just say quickly, this is not a justification for poor preparation in your teaching and your preaching, right? The the Bible says clearly, Paul says to Timothy that we're to what? We're to study to show ourselves approved. But what this is more so is it's a promise of strength and it's a promise of guidance for for the persecuted when they're given the opportunity to testify for him. And oh, how we need this, amen? We need this in the workplace. We need this in our schools, but we need this also in all areas of our lives because look what Jesus says next. He says, not only are we gonna face persecution in the public arena, but in private as well. Look at verse 21. It says, now brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. See, Jesus knew what some of us know too well, that in some cases the gospel would divide family members. Right, And that some of the most bitter and even deadly persecution was going to take place amongst people who loved each other. Again, through the course of history, we've seen this satanically inspired, irrational hatred of Jesus grip entire cultures. Now, of course, it seems ironic at best that a group of people who are seeking to live by the same kingdom expectations that Jesus has just laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems ironic that that group of people would be so greatly hated. And yet it's the very same paradox that inspired the world to condemn and to crucify the only sinless man who ever lived. In spite of all of this, right, it doesn't make any sense, but Jesus encourages us what? He encourages us towards endurance. He encourages us to keep the faith in the face of trials. And towards he encourages us to operate with wisdom. Look what he says next in verse 23. He says that when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he says, you know, persecution certainly... Though it, you know, it's to be expected, he says you don't need to run to it. He says wisely you should try to stay away from it so that you can keep on working while the time is short. You know, we think about the way that the Apostle Paul, remember how he fled from Thessalonica to Berea because of persecution. And then from Berea, we see him, he flees to Corinth and then ultimately to Athens, right? He was wisely avoiding trouble while he could so that he could redeem all of the time that he had left to serve Jesus. Because notice, Jesus punctuates this statement by reminding them of the way that he would return in judgment before this group of men would be able to finish their work. Now, this is one of those hard-to-understand statements that Jesus makes in this book. Jesus didn't mean that he would return to earth before the disciples would make it through all the cities of Israel. Instead, it's better to understand his coming in this passage in the sense of his coming in judgment upon Judea which, of course, we know historically happened in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. And that did happen before the gospel was able to come to all of those cities in Israel. The application for us, of course, is no less compelling. We have only a limited amount of time to get this powerful news of this powerful gospel out to a lost and dying world and with what time we have left we need to operate in wisdom right we need to maintain the right expectation because having just laid out we've saw these warnings of coming persecution watch the way jesus now shifts a little bit right the second of our five tips from jesus on living your best life is to offer to us some promises of comfort and care and he starts out by comforting us, by helping us understand why these things are coming our way, right? We're in good company because he says in verse 24 that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Very simply put, church, as his disciples, we should never expect to be treated any better than Jesus was treated. Beelzebub, literally the lord of the flies, right, was a pagan Philistine god who was worshipped by people who lived in today what is known as the Gaza Strip. And there were those at the time of Jesus' ministry who were trying to explain away the things that he was doing. They were saying that he was using demonic powers to do his work. Some even said that he was demon-possessed. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, I think he's reminding us, look, if they're calling me the Lord of the flies, they're also going to come down on you. And once again, I have to say to you this morning, I am so strangely encouraged and strengthened by this verse. You know, maybe take a pen and underline this as one of those precious promises in your Bible. And here's why. Because Paul explains to the Romans that the great goal of God for each of us as his children is that we be conformed into the image of his son. So if our goal is God's goal, then we most simply want to become more like Jesus. So if people are persecuting us, right, if they're rejecting us because of our faith, because of our faithfulness, it's because they first rejected and persecuted him. And if that's happening, then it's very possible that we are doing something right, Because we may just be becoming a little bit more like Jesus each and every day, which is a good thing, right? And when we understand this, I think this gives us a firm foundation that's free from fear. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 26. He says, therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The prince of preachers, right? Charles Spurgeon, I think he said it best. He said, there is no cure for the fear of man like the fear of God, right? The apostles didn't need to fear these religious leaders, right? With their empty accusations and their promised persecutions because Jesus said, hey, those guys' motives are going to be revealed in the judgment. But instead you know, the disciples could, we can, Jesus says, we can have bold confidence that the truth ultimately will prevail. And because of this, we can go out and we can preach with boldness, even in spite of the danger, because we revere and because we honor God above men. Now, the truth is And if I'm wrong, you'll let me know after service. But none of us in this room this morning likely live with the very real fear of painful persecution. And certainly not unto death. And yet, the fear that our faith would somehow negatively impact our lives is no less paralyzing. It's sometimes enough to keep us from speaking up right, or to keep us from speaking out or to keep us from sharing the things that the Lord has done for us. You know, we think, wow, you know, I I could be singled out. I could be sidelined if I take a stand against this immoral company policy. We think, you know, if my neighbors knew of my biblical position on this social issue, they're going to think I'm a weirdo. Or we think, man, they would reject me if they really knew about my struggles. But what I want us to consider this morning is that when the persecution, right, or the threat of discomfort, when that makes us draw back from speaking and preaching God's word or from giving glory to God for his work, then in some small measure, hasn't Satan already won a bit of a victory there? Because his threat of persecution, it might not have succeeded in actually harming us, but it has succeeded in holding back the work and the word of God. Now, some of you in here know that I have a gloriously powerful personal testimony of the way that the Lord can redeem a life from the ashes Right, of the way that he rescued me from the guilt and the shame of my past sins and the way that he has sustained me through the consequences, the way that he's rebuilt my life in Christ and the way that he has restored to me the years that the locusts have eaten. And yet, if I live my life now in fear of men and I shrink back, from openly proclaiming the power of the gospel and the way that it has brought healing and the way that it's brought wholeness, then I'm allowing fear to paralyze me and to prevent the Lord from being glorified. And there are times when I can clearly sense the Lord dealing with me and speaking to my heart around this issue, gently prompting me to trust him more in this area. And I know that there are some of you here this morning for whom that is true as well. Remember, the Bible declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that we have this treasure, right? The treasure of Jesus Christ, that we have it in these earthen vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So, every one of us in this room, we are a trophy of God's grace and of his goodness, and of the unlimited and the unmatched power of the gospel. And the truth is that this same God whom we have trusted in the past, and in whom we are trusting with our eternal destiny, we can trust that very same God to protect us and to preserve us now. Jesus says in verse 29, he gives us an example. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows, he says. See, God protects us and he preserves us simply because we are precious to him. We're more precious to him than we can ever even comprehend. And it's so easy for, for those who are persecuted or for us in the midst of a, a trial or the midst of our fear. We can so easily feel like God has forgotten about us. But Jesus says that he hasn't. He really does care for us. He really does know everything about us, even down to the very most minute detail. And knowing all of that, he promises us In 2 Corinthians, he says that my grace is what? It's sufficient for you, he says. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, we say, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the problem is we don't have the capacity to comprehend God's capacity for his care and his concern for us. We just can't understand it. So Jesus is assuring us, right, that the father knows and he cares of even the death of these little birds who were virtually worthless in the marketplace. Now, you might be living in fear, right? You might be being treated unjustly at school or on the job or in a family relationship. But know that the father is watching. And when you feel like you're getting, you know, you're getting ripped on and you're getting you know, pressed down or maybe you feel like you've been passed over, just know that the Father sees. And so you can be assured that when you're falling or when you're hurting or when you're stumbling in some way, that the Lord is always watching and he's caring and he's preserving and he's protecting Because of this, Jesus next tells us, therefore, in verse 32, he says, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Church, don't let the fear of man keep you from proclaiming your faith. Now, these two verses, these are another one of the most misunderstood statements that Jesus makes. People will so often read these and they'll ask, does this mean that the Lord's going to deny me if I don't stand up for him? Does it mean I'm going to lose my salvation? No, it doesn't mean that. Scripturally, consider this. The very night that we read of Jesus being led away to be crucified for Peter's sins, we find Peter doing what? Cursing, swearing, denying Jesus. And yet after he died and rose again, the first thing Jesus does is he finds Peter and he says, Peter, what? He says, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, feed my lambs. He says, Peter, keep going. So Jesus did not damn Peter. He didn't disown Peter. He didn't disqualify Peter from service. On the contrary, he put Peter back into play. Now, that's a scriptural example. Linguistically, for those of you that are interested in that kind of stuff, the tense of the verb denies there in verse 33, it's in a tense that doesn't indicate a single occurrence but an ongoing pattern. So one of the scholars explains it, that it views a person's life globally, talking about a lifetime. So the sense is that those who deny Jesus consistently over the course of their lifetime will be denied by him. Not those who, like every one of us, fail like Peter did in a moment of weakness. See, what we need to remember is that when Jesus ascended to heaven, in Hebrews it says he became for us what? Our high priest. And he ever lives, it says, to make intercession for us. Did you know that Jesus is praying for each one of us right now? If we deny him, right, if we fail to stand up for him, what happens is that we miss out on some of the blessings and the benefits that he wants to bestow on us. So we're the ones that end up the poorer. So this verse has less to do with our salvation, but it has everything to do with our blessing. It's The blessing that God wants to shower down upon us as we rightly represent his son. Now, so far we've been warned of coming persecution, but then we were promised right, this comfort and care and now that we've been shored up a little, watch what Jesus does next in the third of his five tips on living your best life. He's going to warn us of more conflict. Right? Once we've identified with Christ, once we've confessed him, once we're living fearlessly and faithfully, once we're declaring the power of the gospel, make no mistake, Jesus says, we are part of a war. Look at verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God declared war on Satan. And whether we like it or not, we are all constantly involved in this cosmic conflict. So often, the gospel is a divider of people. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. The gospel is a message of peace. But when people confess Jesus Christ we make enemies because that gospel calls us as individuals to a radical commitment to Jesus first and foremost right it's this message of peace that divides with a sword between those who choose it and those who reject it and that sword Jesus says next sometimes even cuts through families. In verse 35, he says, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Right, so here are these strong, shocking terms, and Jesus explains that our devotion to him needs to come even above those even of our own households. Now, this seems harsh, doesn't it? This is hard language, and yet, the greatest danger of idolatry, right, or, or placing anything before Jesus. So often it comes not from things that are bad, but the greatest danger comes from things that are good. Like the pursuit of education or advancement or even love in our own family relationships. The greatest danger to what's best comes from those things that are right at second best. Now we may sort of recoil at the thought of putting anything, even Jesus, of putting that before our desire to love and to serve our families. And yet, in God's economy, what we need to understand is that when they're rightly ordered, right, when properly positioned, our love for Jesus as paramount and as primary is going to make us better, isn't it, at loving our families, right, more of Jesus in us, right, being conformed more and more into his image is going to make us inherently better fathers, better husbands, better wives, better mothers, better sons, better daughters, and so on and so forth, because now we have his love in us that is now flowing through us. And yet when when our love and the priority of Jesus in our lives is tested or is questioned by those around us, there are times when his presence is going to divide. So as his followers, we need to be willing potentially to face family rejection. But also look what Jesus says further. He says, we also need to be prepared to embrace our own death. Verse 38 says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me, is not worthy of me. Aren't you glad you came this morning? (laughs) Right. It's going to get better, I promise. This is the ultimate claim of Christ, isn't it, upon our lives, and that's our very lives itself. We need to be in a place where we can make that decision once and for all to love him supremely and to take up our cross and follow after him. So this, of course, is the pinnacle, right, of our progression in our devotion to him, right? Notice it's the love for Jesus there in verse 37 that should become our motivation to take up the cross here in verse 38. Now, in those days, a criminal carrying his own cross was making a silent admission that the Roman Empire was correct in executing a death sentence on him. So similarly, as followers of Jesus, in taking up our cross, we are admitting that Jesus has a right and he has a claim on our lives. Now, just to make matters even that much worse, we need to understand that our cross simply isn't just that particular trial or trouble that we have. Right? Some people would try to suggest that. But the cross means one thing. It means death. Right? When a person took up the cross in Jesus' day, it was for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to die. Now, this is the first mention of the cross in Matthew's gospel. And isn't it, interestingly, it's not even directly related to Jesus' own coming crucifixion, Imagine trying to be these disciples. Imagine such a shocking statement that Jesus would make. He's basically likening true discipleship with the horror of Roman crucifixion, which was something that was too terrible even to be talked about in polite company. Imagine how this was just a mind blower for these disciples. They knew the cross. They knew what the cross was about. One author wrote this, he wrote that the ancient Roman cross did not negotiate. It did not compromise. It did not make deals. There was no looking back when you took up your cross and your only hope was in resurrection life. And that is precisely correct. And that's exactly why the very next thing Jesus exclaims in our, you know, in our five tips from Jesus on living our best life, after all of the warnings of coming persecution, after the promises of comfort and care, after the warnings of conflict, there comes this paradoxical promise of life. In verse 39, Jesus says that he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, the cross brings death. Right? It brings death to self, but it also brings resurrection life unto God. And, and church, that resurrection life is available to us right here and right now. See, Jesus said in John 10, he said that I have come that they may have life and what? That they may have it more abundantly. So there's life eternally, but there's abundant life presently. And this is this great paradox of our Christian lives. We can only find life by losing it, and we can only truly live by dying. And this is the pure promise. This is the power of the gospel. This is the good news that our world and all of humanity who's seeking, this is what they so desperately need to hear. Now, many of you remember in the 60s, the great goal of people was what? To find yourself. And people started looking, but they didn't much like what they found. So in the 70s, the goal was to improve yourself. And we have all kinds of books that were written and courses that were taken, and yet it didn't work because people weren't very happy. In the 80s, the goal became to serve yourself. And we see our nation growing more and more materialistic and yet less and less fulfilled. Then in the 90s and then on into the 2000s, the goal was just express yourself right? And yet we see that even as the internet and as communication grew by leaps and bounds, all of a sudden the messages that we were sending and that we were receiving started really to confuse us, right? We have blogs on every subject. We have random thoughts on Facebook. We have Twitter. We have 10,000 songs in our pockets. We have piano playing cats on YouTube, right? So now in the tens, what we started to see, the focus is now sort of more define yourself. And we see people continually, carefully cultivating and curating their online persona, trying to develop their own personal brand. People that are desperate and living for more likes and more shares and more retweets. And in all of this, people are fundamentally less at peace. And study after study is concluding that we are less happy and we are even more searching for why. Why are we not living our best lives? We see in every age, we say, seek self. But to every age, Jesus says what? Die to self. Now, I'm going to let, am I going to? I don't know. I'm going to let you in on a little secret and you're going to want to write this down this morning. Maybe even in the Bible of the person sitting next to you. Here it is. It's a guarantee. If you want to be miserable all the time, then turn your focus inward. Focus on yourself. But if you want to have life, right? If you want to have your best life, if you want to have that abundant life, then Jesus, the author of life, says, die to self. He says, live for me. Right? In Galatians 5, Paul says that those who are Christ's have been crucified or have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, Jesus can't fully live through us. He can't really be revealed in us until that flesh, right, that proud self within us, is broken and is crucified. Right? It's that hard, unyielding self that justifies itself and wants its own way and, and stands up and tries to protect our rights and our reputation until that self finally bows and admits that it's wrong and gives its way over to Jesus. Right, Think about it. Those are all the things that make us not like Jesus and that make us miserable. Those are the things that keep us from living our best life. It's always the self isn't it, that gets irritable and envious and resentful and critical and worried, right? It's the self that's hard and unyielding in its attitude toward others. It's the self that's shy and self-conscious and reserved because it's the self that's always thinking of what? Itself. So again, this is the great irony, but it's proven over and over, right? It's experientially and analytically and numerically. But the more that you live for yourself, the more miserable you will ultimately be. But the more you say, Lord, I just want to live for you wholeheartedly and completely and totally, then you find that the more abundant and rich your entire life becomes, both now and, of course, eternally. You know, if you if you take just a moment and you think back on the happiest times of your life, what you're most likely going to find is that they were when you were really going for it in Jesus. They were those times when he was the priority in your life and when he was really the passion of your heart. And so this is this priceless promise that the Lord Jesus is making to us this morning, all of the warnings and the shocking statements in verses 16 through 38, all the discomfort and the squirming. I've watched you guys squirming around in your chairs a little bit this morning, but all of it prepares us for this gem right here in verse 39. He who finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. But wasn't it all worth it? There's an old story of two young soldiers, right? They were talking about this being in the service of Christ. And one of them said, you know, I I cannot tell you all that the Lord Jesus is to me or what he's done for me. I do wish that you would enlist in his army. Well, I'm thinking about it, answered the other young man. But it means giving up an awful lot. In fact, I'm counting the cost right now. And at the time, there was a Christian officer who was passing by, and he heard that last remark. And he laid his hand on the shoulder of the young man, and he said, Young man, you talk about counting the cost of following Christ. He said, but have you ever counted the cost of not following him? See, we're given life eternally. We're given this abundant life presently. We are given our best Lives, and yet we're so quick to forfeit it, right? For fear that we're going to miss out or that we're going to be hurt or that we're going to suffer in some way. Watch Jesus conclude. There's one final encouragement. This is the fifth of the five tips from Jesus on living your best life. He's sending us out as sheep amongst wolves, but he reminds us of our position as his representatives. He says in verse 40 that he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me and he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So the good that's done to us As one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus says it's just as if it were being done to him himself. Why? Because we are his plan A, right? We are his faithful representatives, right? We are the ones carrying on his ministry. We are the method through which Jesus is going to reach this world, right? In closing, Paul said to the Corinthians... He said that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we who are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, what? Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know most of you, but if you're here this morning and you have yet to be reconciled to Christ, we are pleading with you. You know, surrender your life to him this morning and find new life in him. After the service, we're going to have prayer counselors, men, women who are uniquely gifted by God and who have the spirit of God and who can talk to you and who can pray with you to receive that new life from Jesus. And for those of us here maybe who do know the Lord, but we sense that there's more. Right? We sense that he's speaking to us about something that's hindering our intimacy with him. There, there's some stronghold of self that just refuses to die and that's preventing that life that he wants to impart to us. Whatever it is for you today, don't go it alone. Come afterward, be encouraged, be refreshed, and be strengthened in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us, Lord. We thank you so much for the work that you desire to do within each one of our hearts. Father, we pray that we'd be open to the ministry of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we worship now, Lord, in this final song, that you would just be speaking quietly, Lord, intimately to each one of our hearts. Lord, help to show us how we can be closer to you. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.